Hello, you're listening to Cut Pathways, a new podcast produced by the Carnegie Mellon University Oral History Program. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast will showcase our growing collection of oral history interviews, which are centered around the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. Before we go too far into this podcast, some of you may be wondering about our name, Cut Pathways. Let's take a walk. Okay, we are standing in the middle of the cut. For those of you familiar with CMU's campus, you'll know the cut as the rectangular patch of grass with two intersecting walkways. If you look at it from above, it looks like a rectangle with a wavy X in it. The cut wasn't always this way though. Before 1967, Carnegie Mellon University was known as Carnegie Institute of Technology. In 1967, it merged with the Mellon Institute to form Carnegie Mellon University. Fun fact, Carnegie Institute of Technology had a women-only college called Margaret Morrison Carnegie College. In 1973, Margaret Morrison closed its doors and the university opened the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, now known as Dietrich. The cut used to be a valley that separated CMU from Margaret Morrison, and there was a bridge that ran over the valley, connecting the two schools. The bridge was removed and the valley was filled in. Today, the bridge is represented by the fence. If you aren't familiar with the campus, there is a fence with probably thousands of layers of paint on it. Different campus groups essentially occupy the fence by painting it between midnight and sunrise. The original fence actually collapsed under the weight of all the paint. So the new fence is reinforced with steel. So our podcast riffs on the name The Cut But we're also here to talk about the many pathways to, through, and around higher education. Today, we'll focus on the pathway from high school to underground. We're going to hear from Dan Maloro, who, as he'll explain, had some trouble finding his path as an undergraduate in the early 1970s. This story also doubles as the origin story for CMU's Activities Board. The Activities Board began in 1968, Dan and others founded it, and it has been responsible for organizing concerts, events, speakers, films, and also it handles all the technical needs for events. When I attended CMU, this was in the early aughts, The Activities Board was a big presence not only in the school, but also within the larger community. I'm thinking mainly in the music community, since they brought bands like the Magnetic Fields and Godspeed You Black Emperor. But they also brought independent films and comedians. I remember playing music at the Underground, which the Activities Board booked. The Underground is the dining hall under Moorwood Gardens. And at that time, they had a stage and pool tables. It was also one of the best gigs in town because you got $100 and a free dinner. Nice. Sounds like a a good payday. Yeah. (laughs) Today, Dan is the president of Far Best Brands, but in the late 1960s, he was far less sure of his path in life. 
As Dan says it, he didn't know what he wanted. I didn't know what I wanted. I was all over the map. I like cars, I like music, I like uh, history. And, but there was a man across the street from where we lived, and he was an engineer for, then it was Sacconi Oil, which became Mobil, which now is owned by Exxon. And uh, he and my father were very close, and he used to let me come and help him work in his old 49 Mercury, his car he was building. And uh, I saw how my father just thought so much of him because my father had no college education. He was self-taught and self-made. So I decided, well, I'll be an engineer like Mr. Chelani across the street. And my father would like that. And I thought, that's cool. So I applied to engineering schools, uh, Lehigh uh, University, Lafayette University, Cornell, Notre Dame, and uh, Carnegie Institute of Technology. Okay, so Dan was planning to attend Lafayette University, but on a whim, he played hooky with his dad and made a visit to Pittsburgh. Dan had already been accepted to Carnegie Institute of Technology, but he hadn't seen the campus yet. It turned out that he liked the eclectic nature of the student population and the then-modern architecture of Warner Hall and Hunt Library. And he liked the fact that Carnegie Tech was in a city and not a town. So he decided to attend Carnegie Tech. Once on campus, he decided to switch from engineering to architecture. But it wasn't exactly an easy switch, as the program was in a state of flux. So we hit campus. It was uh, one or two days before the school year started. And uh, I went to the architecture department and in the fine arts building and as luck would have it there was a new head of the department named delbert highlands he was a professor but now he was newly named and what i didn't know is he wanted to completely remake the department and completely remake the program of study and then to be accepted in architecture you it was like the drama school where it's like conservatory where you had a perform, but in this case you had to submit plans and designs and artwork, and that's how they accepted who came into the architecture department. Well, here I am 48 hours or 24 hours before the school year starts, and I say, I want to be in your department. And uh, he said, where's your portfolio? I said, well, I don't have one. <laughs> I entered this competition, and, and but we talked, and he said, okay, I'll let you in the department. So I started in architecture. The experience was we had to do all these impossible projects and none of us are sleeping. We all look terrible. I remember going home at Thanksgiving and my mother just bursting into tears when she saw me, not out of happiness, just she thought I was dying. We all looked terrible. Most of the kids that came into Carnegie had uh, calculus in high school. I did not. It turned out my high school science and math was so far behind what everybody else was, I was just treading water. And I get a letter from Dean Steinberg, who was the head of humanities school. He calls me in and says, uh, um, I'm expelling you from school. Your grades are terrible. You're incomplete. Um, You don't belong here. And I just looked at him and I said, you're going to kill my father. If he knows 
that I'm failing, flunked out of college. It will kill him. I don't care about me. Could you not tell him? <laughs> I was so worried about my father and what he was going to think. And Dean Steinberg, we kept talking and talking, and he said, I'm not going to expel you yet if you do one thing for me. He said, I want you to go to the counseling center. I want you to take a test. It turned out to be the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Test. I think that's the accurate name. And let's see what this test tells you. I didn't know what it was, but it was fun because the test was nothing but <clears throat> would you rather go to a baseball game or the opera? Would you rather eat a hamburger or a hot dog? Would you rather do this or that? And it was just, it was easy because I just answered truthfully. But what I didn't know was they had given the same test to professionals in many, many occupations. I went back and he said, I got the results of your test. And we sat and looked at it. It was one sheet of paper, alphabetical, architect to zoologist. It was how well you matched with people in that profession. It wasn't if I was qualified to be an architect, it was would I be happy being an architect. So there it was, architect, and I had no bar at all. There was engineer, and I had like two little tiny dots. And then as it went down, there was the one thing that stuck out with me, it says manager of a YMCA, and my bar was off the chart. And all things like that. And he looked at me, he said, you don't belong in engineering, you don't belong in architecture. You belong in something else. You belong in the humanities. He said, I want you to transfer into that department. He said, you got to change your ways. No more incompletes, etc." And he said, and if you do well in the next semester, he said, I'll let you stay in school. But then he said something that was life-changing. Besides that, he said, I want you to get involved in the university. He said, there's a department here called Student Activities. He said, I want you to go over there and do something. So I went to the Student Activities office, which was in the old student union, which was Skibo or Skybo, depending on who you were. And as luck would have it, the new assistant director was there, Bob McCurdy. And he thought that things should be changed and shooken up a little bit. And he says, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, you know, I said, it bothers me that I go home and my friends at other schools talk about the great music that they have, the, the artists, the groups, and the cool things that are on campus. I said, we don't have any of that. We have Spring Carnival, which was great. And that was the big music event. There was a film society that showed, you know, black and white film noir, the Marx Brothers, and stuff like that. And I mean, my recollection is that was about the extent of all I saw on campus. I said, you know, I want to do more. So uh, he had a little budget, and he said, okay, let's do some stuff. So we did, like, we started, like, a coffee house series. Back then, there was a coffee house circuit. And Bob was involved in the National Entertainment Conference, was an association of college activities people that shared acts and they created tours and stuff. And we plugged into that. And I started doing different films. I did like Roadrunner cartoons and stuff like that. And back then it was film. You had a projector. And, and Carnegie had a thing that was random. It was called TGIF. And on Friday afternoons, uh, at around 4.30 or so, in the ballroom of the student union, 
a band would set up and people would dance. It was like an hour and a half and I was there. But it was random, it was once a blue moon. And I said, well, we should do this every Friday. Why aren't we doing this all the time? Well, the problem was, how do you get that many bands for no money? So I started contacting local bands uh, to different people. Who do you know? I went to some local bars and stuff. And, uh, and I would tell them, I said, look, back then, a lot of these small local bands played at fraternity houses at Pitt and Carnegie Mellon. I would tell the bands, I said, look, you can, you can come in. It's like an audition. Uh, all the fraternity guys will be there that book the bands. I said, I'll contact some of the Pitt fraternities to come up. And it's like a way to audition, and, and it's great. It finishes at six, and you can still play someplace else that night. So every Friday, we had a TJF dance, and I was starting to book bands, and then some of them booked like small concerts and stuff like that. But Bob McCarty said, You know, I don't have much money here beyond what else you want to do. So I thought about it, and I said, and there were some other kids that said, oh, can I help you do this and whatnot. I don't know if it was a moment or whatnot, but I went in front of student government, and I said, aren't you tired of going home and hearing all your friends saying what great entertainment they have on campus and we don't at Carnegie, and everyone, yeah, yeah. I said, we should, have, we should do more, but I need money to do this, and we could do this together, and we can create a committee, we can create a board, and it's an activities board. And... So they gave me some funding, and uh, that's how the activities board was born. the head of the activities board. I had great help with other students. This was not a solo activity by any stretch of the imagination because it took a lot of work, a lot of coordinating. And we you know, had film groups going to coffee houses, uh, music. We had we brought in people like Marcel Marceau at the Syria Mosque, the old hall. Uh, you know, it was a little bit of anything and everything, but the idea was also to have balance, that it wasn't just all rock and roll. Sometimes you have folk singers or something classical. We wanted to be as broad and eclectic as possible. While this was going on, uh, Dean Steinberg, you know, called me and he said, you know, don't forget, you need to study, you need credits, you need grades. Um, so he helped me map out. Uh, I took an overload junior and senior year and I had to come back for summer school, junior to senior year. Junior year and senior year, I was on the dean's list. Uh, my grades were high, I was busy 24 hours a day, but because I loved what I was doing in outside the classroom, because I loved what I was doing inside the classroom, it all clicked and my grades were up and uh, I graduated in four years. And from what I understand, the activities board is still alive on campus, and uh, I'm pretty proud of that. that um, I was instrumental in creating it. Uh, so when did you form the activities board? Was it your freshman year? No, no, it was uh, at the end of my sophomore year, so it was toward uh, pretty much uh, spring of 68, thereabouts. 
You mentioned you would bring in bands. Yeah. Can you give me some examples? Because the budget was so small and Carnegie Mellon was not large, so we could not bring in something that the University of Michigan brought in. You know, the University of Michigan could bring in the Beatles if they wanted, but uh, so my premise was we had to identify the up and coming acts. Whatever entertainment there was on campus was fractured. So with the idea with the activities board was we'd bring it all under one roof. So the activities board then decided what the spring carnival was going to be. But then I wanted a fall concert as well. So we did a fall concert. But the scale had to be smaller than other universities. So, but my senior year, uh, because I was so into music, rock and roll predominantly, and I heard this group, the Almond Brothers, and Bob McCurdy taking me to these booking conferences, the NEC, the National Entertainment Conference, where it was all college kids, and the idea was to, with a group of schools, we could entice a band to lower their price if they can hit five schools in seven days, that kind of thing. But there was a group called the Almond Brothers, and I listened to the record, and I was just knocked out by them. It's still my favorite band today, and uh, that we did our senior year in the old Syria Mosque, and it was it was uh, the last big tour before they did the iconic album called Live at the Fillmore East, which was most people know uh, classic rock. I mean, that is one of the great classic rock albums. But we had them at Carnegie Mellon at the Syria Mosque. That year in 1970, because uh, but we had to know that they were going to break out early. There's another artist that they're popular then called Seals and Crofts. They're a little bit of light folk, more, but they had a, a monster AM radio hit called uh, Summer Breeze. So I had them booked so that when they hit campus, Summer Breeze was number one in the country. So nothing that historically you'd say, wow, those are big names. Uh, it was. Uh, making it up as you go along kind of thing. I was learning, Bob McCurdy was a great mentor to me. But again, he was, he had an administrative job. The group, the activities board was a board. I mean, it was, it was a bunch of kids, uh, students. But it was uh, organized chaos. Okay, we got the, the coffee house. We need microphones. Call the, the university department for microphones, whatever it was. Uh, we need chairs. Uh, how about the lighting? Let's, uh, somebody would go to the, the drama department. Do you have any lights with uh, red filters? Uh, so it was exciting. It was sometimes, sometimes nail biting, you know, the artist would show up, the door's locked to the room. You know, who's got the key? Well, it's Saturday night. Who, you know, there's nobody on campus to find the key. You had to call security to come over. Can you open it? Why? Who are you kids? Do you have permission? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, you don't. And it was that kind of chaos. It was, uh, but it was exhilarating. It was, uh, again, it was a group effort. I, okay, I went in front of student government and, and coined the term, but it was really. A bunch of people wanting to do better, you know, more exciting things on campus. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time you tune in, we'll be hearing from Julia Parsons about her time as a codebreaker during World War II. It's a fascinating story. See you next time. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University.
All oral histories are available within the University Archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University Libraries.